Good evening. We're going to open up, as Ali said, in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 to 21, but like this morning we'll read a bit wider. Then we're going to focus on, we're going to focus primarily in verses 12 to 21. Purely because verses 8 to 11 really give us a summarising of what's gone before. It gives us something of what we've looked at in some depth in previous week. But just this idea that Christ is ultimately absolutely everything that there is. And everything else is but loss. That it's all about the righteousness of Christ. And what we're going to read kind of follows in light of that. So let's read from verses 8 to 21. Read it from the ESV translation, it says this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, eh, Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the death, straining towards the goal. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, eh, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now even with the tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their bellies, and they glory in their shame and minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. God's word for us. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for the transforming power of your word. We thank you for the way in which your word can transcend all, uh, all understanding, for the ways that it penetrates straight into our hearts. Lord, would you strip everything away tonight? Would you challenge our hearts? Would you convict us? Lord, would you rebuke us where we need rebuked? But Lord, would we grow closer to you? Amen. I want to give you an illustration. I don't know, when you're preparing a sermon and I was going through this, there was this glorious moment when I was listening to a story uh, on the radio. I was listening to an interview and I was like, that's my illustration for next Sunday. And it's really nice when that happens, you don't have to go digging, you find it. So I want to give you this story that's going to kind of come the whole way through what we're going to look at tonight. But it's this amazing inspirational story of this woman called Jasmine Paris. It came out in the last couple of weeks. I listened to an interview on Five Live. I read an interview in The Telegraph. And Jasmine's a young mum. She's got a beautiful 14-year-old, 14-month-old daughter, Rowan. She's a vet, a young mother, and is also currently studying for a PhD. But not just that, Jasmine is also an ultra-marathon runner. And a couple of weeks ago, she knocked 12 hours off the world record for an ultra-marathon. 
She finished, wait for this, the 268-mile route along the full Pennine Way in 83 hours, 12 minutes and 23 seconds. She started on Monday morning. She finished on Wednesday night. If that's not enough, Jasmine is also breastfeeding her daughter. And at every checkpoint along the way, she would stop to breastfeed. She juggled running 30 uh, miles a week whilst writing a thesis, whilst working as a vet, whilst being a first-time parent. Sometimes I think I'm a little bit busy, but it pales in insignificance compared to that. I love this. On the Tuesday, so three-quarters of the way through the race, she stopped at a checkpoint and she said she was really enjoying herself. Quite how that's possible, I don't know. But she crossed the finish line just after 7 o'clock on the Wednesday with a huge grin on her face. And it got me thinking that the reason she did this so well, apart from the fact that she is insanely fit and insanely motivated, was the fact she was so focused on being reunited with her daughter. I think in her head what was going on was this idea that the quicker I finish this race, the quicker I would get back to my daughter. So this idea, yeah, there's a map of the race. It's a crazy length. But she was focused. She had this motivation and it got her to where she wanted to go. This idea of straining towards a goal. Jasmine's a fantastic example of someone who is straining. Someone who is focused. She would get up at five, half five in the morning before work, before her daughter was up, before she had to write thesis stuff. Just incredible. But she focused and she pressed on to the finish line. Paul uses this word goal in verse 14, which I think lends itself really nicely to this kind of athletic analogy because directly uh, translated, it has this connotation of finishing a race. We talk often about running the race of life, this idea of the story as well that we saw in this video, but this also has connotations of an archery target. And I think it's helpful for, for us to understand the ways in which Paul is speaking to people. We know that Jesus spoke in ways that people understood. Um, that Jesus would speak to the fishermen about fishing things. That he would speak to people of the fields and the ways of the fields. And Paul likewise is doing that here. He's speaking in terms of some kind of race. The race of life that gives sense to people. This visit, uh, vivid picture of running. This idea of pressing on. And I think that's why Jasmine's story is such a good and applicable one. And just as I said before, we're going to leave verses 8 to 11. Again, obviously not because they're not useful. They're fantastic verses about counting Christ as everything and everything else is but loss. But we've covered quite a lot of that. So I just want to move through that. So we're going to focus, firstly, verses 12 to 14, on this idea of pressing on. To read those three verses. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards, uh, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love these opening words. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. Paul puts this out there. He's saying, I'm not speaking from this place of arrogance. I'm not speaking from this place of, I've got it sorted and you need to try and match me. He's not speaking down to us. But he's telling us that we're all in the same boat. He's telling us that we're not perfect. And I love that. I love that humility that we see here. 
We see this development in Paul's character that he is becoming more mature, that he's understanding more what it is to be humble. But I think as well there's this element of frustration in there. He's frustrated that he's not perfect because he knows what he should be. He knows the, the ideal of the gospel. He knows this sinless life that, that, that is so there, that he so wants, but yet is so difficult. I want to bring back this image of Jasmine. The Telegraph article says this. The Astolite showed immense focus, sleeping for just seven hours, sleeping for a handful of hours during the race. Her total rest time, including eating, sleeping, dealing with kit and breastfeeding, was just over seven hours. The goal was to finish well. The goal was to finish quickly because she was focused. The race is frequently referred to as being Britain's most brutal race. It spans this massive length of our country. We know that conditions can be grueling. We can have winds that are battering you at many, many miles an hour with rains that are coming down that would, to be honest, just maybe want to jump in a motor and go home. But she continued with it. The elevation in it is worth two of Mount Everest's peaks. And I get thinking about this 268-mile journey. It's a little bit like life. I think it's a better analogy for life than a running track or even just a marathon. Not that marathons aren't incredibly impressive. Anybody that can run a 5K is seriously impressive because I'm nowhere near there. But it feels like life. It's this long journey that's filled with ups and downs. At those moments, you can't see the end and you can't see the beginning. Do you know there's some seasons of life where we're at the top of that hill? We're at the top of one of these summits and all we have is incredible views of the world. We can just take moments and think, do you know, look at the beauty around about me. Look at the family, look at the friends, look at all the provision God has given for me. What a joy this is. Our families, our friends, the hope that we have in Christ. Those moments where we could just get the deck chair out and go, we're at the top of life. This is amazing. But at other times there are storms. There are serious storms. There's times when that climb is a struggle. There is times when there is no hope, when all you've got in front of you is this massive ascent. All that's in front of you is this steep climb of miles, just miles and miles of empty road that seem to go nowhere. All it feels like is we're climbing for days. And Paul's call to us is to press on. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down, sometimes we're in the middle, sometimes we're in certain places for long periods of time. That is life. But Paul tells us, do you know what? I'm not perfect. I've not obtained the righteousness of Christ. I'd love to be perfect, but I haven't got there. And because of that, I need to press on. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Paul understands his downfalls. He understands the areas in life which he falls short. And he's adamant, quite interestingly, in verse 13, that he will not look back on what has gone before, but rather he will focus on what lies ahead. And I think this is interesting because he's not saying don't look to the past. Because we know that he frequently did. That he would learn lessons from the past and move on. I think that's what we're called to do. This idea of we learn lessons from what goes before. We understand the joy and the hurt and the pain and the sadness and all the good stuff and the bad stuff that goes before, that it forms us, that refines fire, that takes us forward in life. We use all of those experiences, but we don't stay in the past. 
Jesus Christ made me his own. Verse 12. Security. One of the great things that Paul often gives is Jesus Christ has made me his own. I didn't make myself his, but he made me his. He's always so quick to tell us that his salvation is because of Christ Jesus. To tell us that it's Christ's good work. That it's not us that save us, but it's God that saves us. We press on. Why? Not for this finished line of acceptance. Not to achieve this goal of acceptability. If we're thinking in terms of this uh, archery target that the word goal connotates. We're not thinking of being able to hit bullseyes every time and nailing it. Yes, that would be great, but we don't. It's not this idea of having this level of acceptability in the eyes of the Father. Why? Because Jesus Christ made us his own. He did it. We didn't make ourselves children of God. But before the foundations of this earth, God predestined that we would be children of God. What glorious news. What glorious, glorious news that we read of. That security that we have in the fact that Christ Jesus made us his Do you know why pressing on this idea and this desire to constantly be transformed into the image of Christ is caused by the fact that God has made us his own. It's caused by the fact that God has revealed himself and God has saved us and therefore in return we want to give him everything that we have. Our desire is to live lives of holiness. Our desire is to live lives of ambassadors, to live lives of citizens as we'll come to. To live as people that serve the one true and living God. Driven by the fact that Christ Jesus did the work so that we don't have to. To do a work that we could never do within ourselves. That Jesus Christ came and died that day and rose again so that we don't have to face the consequences for what we do. I don't consider that I have made it alone. There's a wee picture that will pop up, this beautiful little quote. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. There's kind of a, a twofold thing here. Firstly, and obviously what he's talking about this passage, is the fact he didn't go alone because God was with him. God was constantly providing. God was constantly protecting. God was constantly blessing and showing himself to Paul. He didn't do life on his own. But he went with God and he also surrounded himself with others. He surrounded himself with like-minded Christians that he challenged and that challenged him. He journeyed life with people. He went and together they went. Most importantly, we go with God. Everything that we do, we go with God. But also the glory of the church and the great thing about fellowship is the fact that we go together. To press on, we press on together. We press on to fix our eyes on Christ. We don't look at what is gone, but we look to Christ. Yes, we learn from the past. But we press on to our goal. that is our eternity with our maker. We press on to eternity that we will see. The second point I want to raise from verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Examples are really, really important. 
you know what I love about church is just being able to see and witness people being good examples to our young people. To see our young people being encouraged by the actions of those that, that are older than them. Of seeing those that are older than them making decisions that by the world's standards are a little bit funny. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But I love it. I love just being able to watch people being good examples. So my question is, who are your role models? Growing up, I was a big David Beckham fanboy. I was born just around the corner from him in London. And our birthdays were two weeks apart. Everybody I went to school with knew our birthdays were two weeks apart. Because that, obviously, a few years as well. But apparently that made us best friends. And I remember his clothing range came to Marks and Spencer's. Goodness knows when, like year 2000 or something. And oh my goodness, I was kitted head to toe. And it was just the bee's knees. It was the best thing ever. Here was me knocking about in David Beckham's gear. We lived, not that he lived in London anymore, but we lived kind of close to each other. And his clothing range was out and our birthdays were close. And I thought I was the bee's knees. My footballing skills aren't quite there. Mount Everest. The highest mountain in the world has two routes that are used by climbers. Both routes have an absolute ton of danger to them. Apart from the ridiculous temperatures, the unpredictable weathers, the winds, there's a limited amount of months in the year that you can go and attempt to climb. There's tight periods during the day in which you can safely ascend and descend to the mountain. But the most dangerous obstacle that's faced by anybody is altitude sickness that can kill you. And it's interesting because people don't climb Mount Everest on their own. It doesn't matter how experienced you are, the most experienced of all climbers never ever tackle it alone. And they don't just go with friends. They always, always, always go and get one of these guys that are really, really cool, but a group of people called the Sherpas. You probably know of them. But the Sherpas are this unique group of people who for generations have inhabited the valley at the bottom of Mount Everest. And because they've been living there so long, there's something in the genetics that develop that they can function at very high altitudes. So whereas a lot of people start having oxygen problems, these guys don't. As long as we have them about 8,000 feet, these guys can go up to 23,000 feet without any oxygen problems. And because these guys have trekked up and down Everest a lot of times, they're experts. They know the weather patterns. They know how to predict what's in front of them. They know when the best time to climb is. I think we've got a picture of them. It sounds like people climb, give them all their bags, and these poor blokes have got to climb this mountain with all your gear on the back so that you can take a photo up at the top, by the sounds of it. But there's something else with these guys that the experience can't buy us. You can't buy the experience of being able to tell the weather on Mount Everest. But there's something in these guys that also appreciates the beauty of this mountain. They understand the beauty of it to take people, to show them the glory of what is Mount Everest. And I think as we read this, Paul's a little bit like a Sherpa. When you climb Mount Everest, you take advice from the bloke that knows what he's talking about. Fairly logically. For us in our Christian journey, don't we want to take advice from those that know what they're talking about? Yes, Sherpas aren't perfect. Yes, some of them have died on the route. But they're equipped and they're experienced. Do you know, I think it's easy to read this and think that Paul is arrogant of himself when he says, eh, be an imitator of me, follow me. 
But as we read it in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying we're all in this together. We're all doing this together. He's encouraging them to follow him, an imperfect sinner, as he pursues on this goal of Christ-likeness. I think the beauty of so much of what Paul says is it's so honest. You know, we're not spared his downfalls, we're not spared his shortcomings, but instead every bit of it is laid before us. We see this imperfect man. We see this man that time and time and time again is falling short of the glory of God, but we have an earnest man. We have a man that wants to put Jesus Christ and the glorification of Christ at the centre of everything that he does, and he wants to encourage us to do the same. We know that Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We know that three decades after his conversion in his letters to Timothy, he still refers to himself as the foremost of sinners. So my question is, who do you learn from? Who do you imitate? Yes, ultimately and obviously we imitate Christ. But we need earthly examples. We need people that show us, how do we do this? And the beauty of living 2,000 years after Christ is we have 2,000 years worth of incredible examples. Do you know, I love this. John MacArthur makes this point. Had he been perfect, Paul would not have been an example believers could follow. It's a great point. We need to follow somebody that's not perfect to understand and how they can do it and they can help show us how we do this. Someone to help overcome our imperfections. Someone who can show us how to handle the struggles of life, the disappointments, the trials, to teach us how to handle our pride, to resist temptation and to put death to sin. Christ is the perfect standard. Christ is the model and he's the pattern for us as believers to emulate, yes. But Christ didn't have to pursue perfection because he was always perfect. But Paul is this fellow traveller on a path towards this untainable spiritual perfection and therefore gives us this model to follow. Who are the Christian models in your life? It's good to pause and to look around us. Who can we sit under? Who can we learn from? Who can we spend time with? There's nothing more amazing, I find, than sitting with somebody older than myself that's been doing this and been on this journey a lot longer than I have and just being able to listen to the nuggets of wisdom that they have. Why? Because they're more experienced in this journey than I am. They've been around the block longer than I have. They understand what it is to fight trials, to go through them, to go through the struggles of temptation, of sin. Who are you walking with that models Christ? And if you don't know the answer to that or you don't know of anybody, I urge you to think about it. I urge you to speak to somebody. I urge you to sit under them, to sit with them, to learn from them and be guided. Battle together. It's the beauty of sitting together and opening the scriptures together as we're walking together. We're all doing this together. So let's empower and let's enable and let's help one another. You know, Paul shows us so many of the amazing Christ-like qualities. We see in his virtue, his morality, his victory over his temptation, his worship, his service to God, his patience. 
The way he handles his possessions, his interactions with those around him. There's so many ways we see this and there's somebody great to imitate. You can't read these letters and not be inspired to think, do you know what, this is somebody that's on the right path. This is somebody that is so emulating to live like Christ. And to our third and final point. In verse 20 and 21 it reads, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Press on. Keep going. No matter where we are in this 268 mile mental stretch of life, whether we're up, whether we're down, whether it's raining, whether it's we're basking in the sunlight and the glory of God, wherever we are, press on. Find good examples. Find people that we can sit with. Find people that we can learn from. In verses 18 and 19, we read of this warning. It says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These are people that are saying we come in the name of Jesus, but they're not walking the walk. These are the Judaizers that we've been referring to in previous chapters that Paul's been warning the church in Philippi all about. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? Well, it means they're so obsessed with keeping the clean and unclean food lots. They're so obsessed with keeping these religious things right that saying, first you've got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Just misleading people. They were dictating. They were not dictated by the gospel, but they were dictated by their own thinking and their own understanding. And I think it's quite well placed within that because it shows us what we don't want to be. And I think if we struggle, if we try and do this alone, if we try and do this without each other, if we try and do this without walking together, when pressing on gets difficult, it's easy to be sidetracked. It's so easy to be taken from the narrow path. We want to be a people that's beliefs and our convictions are seen in the way that we live life. What is our aim? Is our aim that our beliefs are so evident in the way that we live that all people see is Christ? I think these verses are something of a side point for Paul as well. I think they're prompted by the word walk. He's thinking of walking well, and then he thinks, oh, I'm just going to throw in this example of those that aren't walking well at the same time. He's saying that the true walk of the believer it also reminds him of the enemies to the gospel. Do you know, in our boys' Bible study on a Tuesday, we've been opening up the book of First John, and the, the words, the famous words of chapter 2, verse 15, we were reading this week. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't love the world, because you're not of the world. We're not the world. We're not of this world. But we are a people whose citizenship is with our God. If we're called to be set aside from the things of this world, if we're called to be different from the things of this world, then the things, the people that we influence ourselves with, the people that we spend our time with, the things that we feed ourselves, the things that we meditate on, are of exceptionally great importance. 
Why? Because if all our time is spent doing worldly things, then lo and behold, our actions, our passions, they're formed by the world. But if we spend our time with God, if we spend our time with fellow believers, if we spend time learning from good examples round about us, then lo and behold, our actions and our thoughts are shaped by our God. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself? Two things here. Again, as Paul tells us, it's all about God, not us. God will do the transforming, not us. And the beautiful reassurance at the end of that, God is bigger than me and you. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? It is God who transforms. It is not us. Our eternity is secure in Christ because of the work of Christ. As the people of God, is the spirit of God that lives within each one of us. And it is only through the spirit of God that we may be transformed. How gloriously reassuring is the gospel message that it's all about him and not about us. It's not about what we do, but it's about what God does. God is the transformer. We are the transformee. I don't think that's a real word, but I put it up there anyway. Some of my favorite words in here. By the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself. All things. There's no little asterisks. There's no exception. I'm not going to list everything that there is in the world. But the entirety of the natural realm. The powers that are evil. The hearts of men. Everything is subject to Christ. Everything sits under the authority. Why? Because our God is all powerful. Everything is subject to God. And that power that we see in our God enables him to subject all things to himself. And I think this closes us off beautifully. I've been reading A.W. Pink's Sovereignty of God this week. So that's why, again, I'm influenced this week by this idea. Just, again, the real need of our emphasis on the sovereignty of God. But, But the sovereignty of God represents the ability that he has to exercise his holy will and his supremacy. It comes from this idea that everything is his. Everything is subject to our God. To frame our Christian life, we need to understand God's sovereignty. To declare that God is sovereign, we're declaring, verse 21, that it's God who transforms and that it's the power that he has to subject all things to himself. It's an acknowledgement that only God can transform. It's an acknowledgement that everything within and out with this world comes to pass because God allows it. And it tells us that all things are subject to God. I want to read you this quote from Al Mohler. He says this, What does it really mean to affirm God's sovereignty? It means that God rules over all space and time and history. It means that he created the world for his glory and directs the cosmos to its purpose. It means that no one can truly thwart his plan or frustrate his determination. It means that we are secure in the knowledge that God's sovereign purpose to redeem a people through the atonement accomplished by his son will be fully realised. Two things. It's God that transforms. God is bigger than you and me. 
Maybe there's things we need to let go of tonight. Maybe there's sinful desires. Maybe there's things that we're clinging to that aren't heavenly. Maybe there's temptations that you long for God to take from you. I urge you tonight to bring it before God. It's a difficult life. There are lots of things that we will face in this life. The last thing we need is extra baggage of carrying around the guilt and the shame before our God. Let God be your Sherpa as you trek up Mount Everest. Let him take the baggage. Bring it all before the cross so that we might run the race of this life. Tonight, as we reflect on this call to press on, this call to press on, we do so as a reaction. We do so as an acknowledgement. We do so because we love our God. Because we love our God, who all things are subject to. This call to press on, like our example of Jasmine did. Through all the circumstances and all the difficulties that are thrown along our way, we are called to press on. We're called to imitate good examples. The scriptures are packed with good examples and terrible examples of people that are striving for God. So striving for God that everything else becomes irrelevant. Find someone. Journey with someone. Maybe you have those people in some of your conversations recently haven't really got past how are you doing. Break that barrier. Have those difficult conversations. Have those difficult conversations that get to the nitty gritty of life. Because that's what we've got to do. And rest. Rest in the transformational and the sovereign nature of our God. Why? Because we belong to him. Because he did the work and it's not us. But our citizenship is with him. Nothing comes to pass without God's ordaining. Let us rest. Let us rest in the unchanging love of our God. Let's pray. Lord God, we know all too well that in life there are so many different stages of this race. That there are ups, that there are downs, that there are everything in between. There are, there are moments when we feel like we're at the edge of a cliff. There are moments when we feel like we're at the bottom of the valley. There are moments when the storms seem to take us over. Lord God, would you help us to rest in you? Lord, would you help us to rest in the fact that you are sovereign and that you are above all things? Would we rest in the God that all things are subject to? Lord, you are so, so glorious. Lord, if we can't see you right now, if we feel distant from you right now, Lord God, would you bring us home to you? Would you bring us close to you? Will we know that our salvation rests not in us, but it rests within you? Lord, would you ignite that fire to press on in our hearts? Will we want to press on in response to the work that Christ did? And Lord, would you give us the determination if we need it to find those round about us to journey with? To find those that we maybe need to hold ourselves accountable to? Lord, we thank you that we can gather in your presence. We thank you that you are a God that never leaves us, but you are a God that challenges us, that you are a God that loves us. 
You're a God that goes with us through every stage of life. Lord, we give you the glory. Amen.